host, Chloe Warziniak. Today, I'm talking with Christina Hoansky, a PhD candidate in psychology. We discuss her strategies for dealing with controversial topics in the classroom. We also talk about diversity and how a diverse group of students can affect these kinds of conversations, both in face-to-face classes as well as a hybrid format. Let's get started. about your background and your current role at Rutgers. I am a sixth-year PhD student, so doctoral candidate in social psychology. Um, mostly my research looks at biased visual processes towards different minority populations or stigmatized groups. So for example, a large body of my work looks at how maybe we might exhibit biased visual attention or perception of people who are members of the LGBT population. Um, I've taught a lot here at Rutgers, which has been a really great opportunity. So I've taught anywhere from online hybrid courses for statistics to small interdisciplinary classes of 10 students to big 250, 300-person lectures and social psych. Um, so I've really enjoyed like all the teaching opportunities I've had here. So definitely excited to talk about some of those. So I looked at your, uh, your teaching statement. And I haven't seen very many, but <laughs> yours is definitely the first that I've seen citations. Mm, is yeah. that is that common in your field, or were you just so excited about the research that you're like, I have to put this in there? <laughs> so I think for me, like I take my approach to teaching the same way that I take my approach to research, mm-hmm. which is with scientific method, like using evidence-based research practices in the same way that I do in the lab, I do that with my teaching too. So I'm really up to date on the teaching literature. So I think it's really important for me as an educator to make sure that I'm up to date on what's the most recent pedagogy and what's the most evidence-based practices for teaching. And so I wanted to you know, show that a little bit in my teaching statement by making sure that my readers know that you know the things that I employ in the classroom, I have a reason for doing it. It's not just because I think it might work, that there's evidence to suggest that it will. So that was something really important for me for how I sort of guide my teaching and come up with how I teach my courses. Um, Yeah, so I put that in my my teaching statement too. (laughs) And you you mentioned uh, in there that in your uh, policy on on technology Mm -hmm. that you tell students about this research that supports note-taking by hand. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you give the students like, hey, here's the actual papers that say that, or you just Mm -hmm. sort of tell them this exists and let me know if you... Yeah, Good, or how do you approach Absolutely. That? So anytime I mention citations, you know, in my lectures, whether mm-hmm. it's for how I develop my policy or just even in teaching, we'll talk about studies. I always make those studies available to students if I can. Um, I, you know, encourage students never, you know, to be skeptical, to be scientists and to be critical. So to never just take my word for it. Uh, so I do always sort of share those articles with them. I don't know how many of them read it, (laughs) Um, but it is available to them uh, if they don't want to just take my word for it. But I do, you know, try to encourage students to, you know, look at the research in in the same way that I provide literature for how I develop my courses. I provide them literature on how to be good students and how to be the best students that they can be based on the current evidence. That's awesome. So I want to jump into uh, one of the main topics we're going to talk about, which is uh, dealing with controversial topics or sensitive topics Mm -hmm. in the classroom so let's start uh chronologically at the beginning (laughs) so you're you're you are getting ready for the semester you're Mm -hmm. putting together your syllabus and you know that there's going to be some 
topics that are going to be sensitive or controversial. What do you do at the beginning of the semester to sort of lay the foundation and prepare yourself for that? That's a really great question. I think this is a really important topic. So first thing I want to say is that, you know, talking about controversial issues or talking about diversity issues is often really uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for teachers to talk about these topics. It's also uncomfortable for students many of the time to like learn about it. But just because it's uncomfortable, that doesn't mean that it's not super important. And so I'm really excited that we're talking about these things. Um, but for me, you know, especially for classes like my social psychology class, we do cover a lot of really controversial topics. And so I set my lecture up in such a way or set my syllabus up in such a way that I try to put sprinkle those topics throughout the course so it's not like we're going to have three weeks of things that are maybe a little tough to talk about. And I typically schedule them you know, in the first month or after the first month. So I put it uh, in my lecture in such a way that the students have a chance to get to know one another first and get to know me first and my intentions first. So I think if we started you know, day one talking about prejudice, that that could be really tough. Uh, so it gives students a little time to get to know the classroom first, um, but also early enough that that everything we talk about afterwards, they can have, you know, feel comfortable having discussions and dialogue because we've set the pace there. So I usually put it like at the first third of the semester, and that tends to work out well. Um, and I also, for when it comes to um, these classes that might have these touchy subjects, I day one spend an aggressive amount of time uh, going over you know, the way that I expect the, the feelings in the classroom to go. Um, and that oftentimes takes a lot of time. So I'll really take you know, 10 minutes out of the first lecture, maybe even sometimes more, which is a significant portion of time uh, in the days where we're sort of going over the syllabus or whatnot to say, hey, just a warning that we're going to talk about these things. We're going to talk about sexism and racism and prejudice and discrimination and all these really big issues. Uh, and you know you have to prepare yourselves for that. And so uh, set the ground rules right at the beginning of class. So I reiterate these rules throughout the semester, but really day one saying, you know, there's a couple of rules that I'm going to have. Like one is you have to be respectful of one another. So that means, you know, recognizing that if a student has an opinion that's different from yours, give them the benefit of the doubt, right? So don't assume that someone's coming in and saying something to be offensive. They might not recognize their own privilege or might not recognize your experiences, and they're really just speaking to their own experience. So to take the time to give one another the benefit of the doubt and also to recognize, like I said, their own privilege. So I say this the first day of class, and I reiterate this anytime we're going to talk about sensitive topics. But I say, you know, hey, like, here's where I'm coming from, right? I am a white, cisgender woman, uh, heterosexual woman. So there are certain topics that I can speak to. I can speak to sexism. I can talk about personal experiences there. But I'm also going to have to talk about things like racism, which I have had the privilege to not experience. And so by recognizing my own privilege, I think it encourages students to share their own experiences. Uh, and it also makes them think about what privileges they're coming into the classroom with. And so you know, recognizing that I might not be the ideal representative makes them maybe think, well, maybe they aren't the ideal representative for groups that they're not members of. Uh, and so just really setting those ground rules super, super early and then reiterating them to you know, really a beating a dead horse extent uh, <laughs> yeah. throughout the semester. And I think it's worked out fairly well so far. 
So probably keep on doing that. One of the main points you made in your teaching statement was that you work really hard to make the material relevant to the students in a number of ways, and some of that being relating it to their personal experiences. And you mentioned um, both in your teaching statement and just now that Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about, for example, prejudice and discrimination. And in your teaching statement, you said that you encourage students to share their personal experiences. Have you found that they're willing to? um, And how have other students responded to that? Yeah, so I, I really do. So again, as I mentioned with the, you know, talking about, for example, racism, uh, whenever I'm going to talk about something like that, I'll often preface it by saying, hey, you know, I recognize that I'm not a perfect representative of this group, but I'm going to do my best to talk about these issues from the literature, from what I know. Um, and so in doing so, I also often will say, or always will say, if you are a student who has experienced these things, or you are members of this group, help me right so I'm like I use teaching as an experience to learn for myself too and so I say help me like tell me your experiences share your experiences with the class if you feel comfortable doing that and I found that more often than not students are absolutely open to doing it so and sharing their experiences so I often find that by just setting up the discussion to say I'm a learner here with you and it's not just me telling you here's how racism works in America and saying you know hey this is what I know from the literature, but tell me, help me. And they often want to help and they want to talk about their experiences. Um, and so it's gone really well. Students are often more than willing to share, uh, which has been really, really great. Uh, and you know, there's been very few times where I've had to kind of poke them a little bit. Um, so I'll often you know, get the ball rolling by saying, you know, here's an, a, an anecdote from a friend of mine, or here's what I've seen you know, in my own life or with my own family or things like that. And that sort of helps them feel comfortable sharing. I I really find that students will give back what you put in. So if I'm vulnerable and I'm open and I'm honest with them, they oftentimes will reflect that back. And so I think it goes well. And I think other students appreciate it too, because so many times uh, students, you know, might not have friends who are people of color or they might not really personally get to know these experiences. They see you know, stories in the news and they say, oh, well, that was just you know, one person who had that experience. But when they see it's the person next to them who's having these experiences, I think it's really eye-opening. So I really feel like all students can benefit from those personal sort of touches. Have you ever experienced a student responding to, to another student sharing their experiences in a let's say less than constructive way um and if so how do you approach that yeah so I think you know really I've had very few of those experiences so students tend to be really respectful of one another um in fact to the point where the classroom often gets biased with sort of like everyone just agreeing uh or supposedly agreeing uh, and so, for example, one situation I had, I, we were, again, we were talking about prejudice and uh, black students were talking about how they feel disenfranchised sometimes in education and things like that. Uh, and we had a really, really great dialogue, but no one sort of came in to say like, hey, you know, I, I disagree or I don't really think that this is something, this is a problem. 
Uh, and so it was really nice in the moment that we, you know, everyone was sort of like, yeah, like, it's really, these issues are really important. Uh, and that was exciting, but it doesn't reflect the reality of, you know, there are 250 people in the room. The idea that all 250 of them agree about this issue is statistically highly unlikely. Uh, and what ended up happening is that after class, I had a white student come up and say, hey, you know, my life's been hard too. And, you know, the way that this class discussion went, it made me feel like, you know, I'm racist for just being white, and, and I don't think that's true. Uh, and so I really encouraged that student to, you know, speak up. I said, you know, it's great you're telling me this, that I appreciate hearing this feedback, but tell your classmates that too, because that's going to generate a really important conversation. Uh, and he did the next day, which was great, so we were able to have that. But that was a really learning, a real learning experience for me that it wasn't so much an effort to get students to share their experiences, which they were more than willing to do, but sort of the counter arguments weren't being expressed. Um, and so one thing that I do to help students who are the ones who really need to learn, right? The ones who are really feeling like, oh, I can't talk about these issues or, you know, am I racist for being white? Uh, that those are the students that really we need to be having these conversations with. And so one thing that I do is I really encourage students to play, you know, devil's advocate in a sense to say, well, why, you know, maybe you don't personally believe this, but, you know, why might someone feel like X or Y? Uh, and that sort of gives students who maybe don't feel the same way as everyone else to, you know, have like a little protective blanket to talk about these issues to say, well, I don't personally believe this, but, you know, whatever. Uh, and so that helps students generate conversations uh, and gives them a little bit more confidence that they're not going to be attacked by their classmates. Uh, <laughs> but uh, more often than not, we've had really productive conversations. Uh, I've never really, I've never had an opportunity or a, not an opportunity, I guess. <laughs> I've never had an instance uh, where students got really disrespectful. Uh, but anytime it got close to that, we'd often just pivot or we'd come back to the conversation later after people have had a chance to calm down a little bit. Uh, but generally, people are really excited to hear one another's stories. That's awesome. How do you make sure in, in moderating these conversations, you have opinions mm -hmm. and personal feelings and experiences. How do you moderate the conversations so that it doesn't go down a negative route and an, an, a non-constructive route, but also not letting your own opinions bias the conversation. Yeah, that is so hard. <laughs> uh, so I am a person of many feelings. Uh, so it is really tough to not let those feelings seep into the classroom. So I really have worked hard to set up, you know, personal rules for myself. So for example, to say there are things that I will not tolerate and there are times where I will disagree with students. Uh, so for example, if I you know, in conversations, I've had times where students might say, like, well, you know, climate change is, is a hoax or something like that. And I'll say, absolutely not. <laughs> Here's some scientific evidence to tell you that you're wrong. Um, but, you know, there are other times where students are talking about their feelings. And so recognizing for me and telling my students this as well, if someone's talking about the way that they feel, we can't say that that's wrong. Right? We can say, well, when you feel like this, it makes me feel like that. Um, but we can't ever, you know, shut down someone's feelings or opinions. And so that's like a rule that I have for myself uh, and that I have for my students as well, that if someone's saying I feel a certain way to 
you know, we can talk about what that means or where that comes from, but it's not wrong. Uh, another sort of way that I try to prevent my own biases from coming in is really focusing on, you know, the classroom as a learning opportunity for me. So there was a really cool example where last semester we were talking about uh, stereotypes about men and the way that men are acceptable to, or ways that are acceptable for men to act in society. And we uh, watched a little video about how, you know, men can't cry, right? And how men shouldn't be emotional and that, that, that are, these are sort of these gender prescriptions that we have in society. So what was really interesting is I had one student who was an older gentleman, raised his hand and he said, well, if I teach my sons not to cry and that's sexist, then I'm a sexist. And just letting you know that. And I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Tell me more. And he was saying that, you know, well, like it or not, these are the gender rules that society has. And as a parent, I care more about protecting my sons than I do about breaking gender norms. Huh. So for me... I feel like if my son is crying, I'm going to tell him to stop because when he gets into business or when he gets into the real world, people are going to you know, look down on him if he's a man who's really emotional. And he's like, so I don't care about breaking down those gender norms. I want to protect my kid. And so initially, my gut reaction was, you know, how dare you, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's, you know, we've got to break down those gender norms. Um, but he really, you know, taught me to think about these issues from a different way. So I go into talking about controversial issues uh, as an op with an open mind as much as I can with students because I learn from them. So I had never, I'm not a parent, I have never thought about these issues, uh, gender issues from that perspective of, you know, hey, you want to protect your kids. So I can still maybe disagree with that mindset, but it did open my eyes and uh, I think ultimately opened some of my students' eyes because, you know, many of them are younger, many of them don't have children. Uh, and so a really nice conversation started from that comment. So just trying to be open to students' perspectives as well like has taught me a lot about how to think about some of these issues. You, one of the other ways that you mentioned you bring the material into students' real life is talking about media-reported statistics and how to read those critically and, and learn from them. The news has been a little crazy, in, you know, the last year or so. Right. Um, has that brought up, made this seemingly relatively straightforward thing, mm -hmm. has that made it m more difficult to talk about and more controversial? Yeah, so I think there is, you know, we in our culture at the moment, there is this, you know, the press are the demons and everything is fake and how can we believe anything we read? Um, and so I had, you know, I've been teaching statistics for much longer than the past year, and this has sort of always been an important undercurrent of the way I teach my class is that I want students to be critical of what they read. Um, but I think it's heightened now, especially that, you know, really we're getting news so quickly and in so many different ways. Uh, and we see so many numbers and like, what do those numbers mean? And so I, I think it's more important and will continue to be more important as media becomes more and more you know, prolific and we have constant access to news all the time for students to be able to think critically and to not take everything at face value. And really, I think that's an important message for all students is to be scientists, be scientists in the way that they move about the world and that they aren't just taking a fact as a fact, that they need to say, okay, well, where do those numbers come from? 
And so I do that in my statistics course, um, particularly, you know, for example, we talk about correlations, not equaling causation. Um, all psych majors should just have that tattooed on their bodies. <laughs> they, they all like, it's, they're really cute. I say, okay, correlation doesn't equal, and they all go, causation. Um, they just, they all know it. They learn it in gen psych. It's like pounded into their brains. Um, and they can repeat that little phrase, but whether they can actually understand that at a deeper level to say, okay, well, how does that mean I'm going to interpret numbers when I read an article? So I'll bring in, you know, articles that I've gotten off of Facebook or, you know, other places that maybe like more pop science-y where they'll say, you know, uh, farting reduces cancer or like something <laughs> like that. And we'll talk about like, well, okay, so what does this mean? <laughs> like what's the prescription there? Um, and we'll talk a little bit about articles that are properly talking about correlational evidence to say, okay, well, there's a relationship, but what does that mean? Versus some articles that maybe make inappropriate interpretations. Um, and so especially, you know, as someone who spends way too much time on social media, <laughs> uh, I get fired up when I see things that aren't talked about in the right way. So because I know my students are also probably spending that inappropriate amount of time on social media, that I want them to, even if it's something silly like flipping through Twitter or Facebook, to be able to say, well, like, wait a minute, like, I'm not going to actually, you know, think that I need to, you know, fart in order to protect <laughs> my health. Uh, so whatever it is, um, just making sure that they, you know, are reading silly things the right way, but also like really important things the right way as well. So you mentioned that in particular, you talk about these in your stats course. Mm -hmm. And is that quantitative methods, yes. the name of it? Yep. So you have taught this course as an instructor in a regular, mm -hmm. uh, in face-to-face -face, and yep. a hybrid, and you've been a recitation instructor. So yep. you're very familiar with this so course. So familiar. How do those conversations about these potentially touchy subjects, um, media report statistics, mm -hmm. or or um, maybe some and other things that might come up? Mm -hmm. How does that conversation differ between a face to face and a an online or a hybrid? situation? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would just like to say quickly that stats is the greatest course of all time. <laughs> um, I love teaching stats as evidenced by the thousand students <laughs> that I've taught this course. Um, it's my very, very, very course to teach. Um, but it's been really neat seeing the difference between teaching like the in-class version of quantitative methods with a small section of, you know, 20 students to, you know, larger recitations where we will have 100 students to online. Uh, so it's been really cool to see how the course really needs to adapt for those different uh, environments. So the way that I set my online quant course up is a flipped classroom. And so by doing that, what I do is all the lectures are pre-recorded online. So students watch all the lectures and then come in for what's really you know, sort of like a recitation with me um, in a much less frequently than they'll be watching those lectures. And so by doing that, it sort of allows me to be a recitation instructor in a sense. So I always jokingly tell them that if they have any problems, talk to their instructor, which is Christina from two years ago when she <laughs> recorded those <laughs> lectures. So good luck getting in touch with her. Um, but in reality, it allows them to, you know, kind of do the drier stuff, the, the lecture part of the class online so they can go through. I try to make it fun, but uh, so they can go through and do that online so that when we meet as a class, we get to have really cool discussions. 
So I know that there are certainly hybrid classes that successfully have those discussions online, but I really like having students have them face-to-face -face because I think it allows a more personal element of the class so that they can continue those conversations online. But I primarily like to have those, those tougher conversations uh, in person when I, we do meet with them. So one of the aspects that has come up in talking about how to deal with controversial topics mm -hmm. is the fact that you have a diverse student population and everyone comes in with different experiences mm -hmm. and different needs and your research is uh, deals with some of these mm -hmm. issues. If I remember correctly, you mentioned uh, a current project that you're working on that mm -hmm. seems to relate your research. Yeah. It's a research project, right. but it's also about teaching. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that project and, and in general, how do you bring your research into, how does that inform your teaching? Yeah, so I really, um, I do study diverse topics. I study discrimination towards stigmatized groups. I study pro-environmental behavior. I study health. So I study these, you know, big social diverse issues that definitely bleed into the way that I teach. And the way that I teach definitely bleeds into the research that I do. So I, as I said, I try to be a scientist in all things that I do across all aspects of my career. And so uh, there's some really neat work that's been done by some of my colleagues here in the social department. So Kim Cheney and Diana Sanchez have done some really neat work looking at how identity safety cues, so for example, something like a gender neutral bathroom sign, makes other minority groups who maybe aren't even transgender feel more comfortable. So for example, a gender neutral bathroom sign, uh, if I remember correctly, was related to just women feeling more comfortable or thinking that that workplace would be a safer place for them. And so that work was really fascinating and got me thinking about whether or not we can so show these sort of identity safety cue transfers in the classroom. So thinking, you know, for example, uh, I've often, you know, I'm a big ally of LGBT individuals. And so one thing I see in that community is a lot of people talking about their preferred pronouns. And so I was wondering, you know, perhaps if we ask students what their preferred pronouns are, their preferred names, things like that, if that won't just make maybe transgender or non-binary students feel more comfortable, but any minority student feel more comfortable. Uh, and I found actually in some pilot data that perhaps that's the case. So for example, uh, I had students in my last uh, semester social psychology class, you know, I just said, you know, if I were to ask you what your preferred pronouns were, you know, tell me a little bit about how that would make you feel. Uh, would that make you uncomfortable? Like, what, what would that do? And I had one student who submitted the survey and said, you know, I'm not a member of the LGBT population, but I am a woman of color. And so for me, I wouldn't, you know, personally be affected by you asking me this question, but it would be like really good to know that you cared about that stuff, that it would make me feel like I maybe belong more because you're someone who does care about diversity, who does want students to feel included. Uh, and so overall, I'm doing a little bit more work and trying to get uh, a good, more scientific <laughs> uh, version of that study off the ground, but just looking at whether, you know, trying to make the classroom more inclusive for some groups might even help other students, students who maybe even aren't part of that group feel like they belong. Another key aspect that you uh, really seem to focus on when talking about your teaching and your teaching statement was the anxiety that students often feel. Uh, and one of the things you talked about that you use to mitigate that is the, the use of a 
growth mindset. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in how this relates to diversity that this is particularly important for students from disadvantaged groups. So um, can you talk about what is growth mindset? Mm -hmm. How do you incorporate it in the classroom? Mm -hmm. And what do you mean it's it's uh, particularly important for diverse groups? How do we how do we know that? <laughs> right. So uh, our growth mindset is this idea that intelligence is not fixed. So there's growth versus fixed mindset. Someone with a fixed mindset might believe that, you know, I'm I'm good at this and I'm bad at that, and there's nothing to change it. A growth mindset is more flexible. So it suggests that I'm capable of a, of learning different things and my intelligence is adaptable. Uh, and so I really work hard to put my students into a growth mindset when learning. Uh, anxiety is such a hurdle, especially in statistics. I have many students who have taken the class more than once who come into the class saying, I'm going to barely pass this, if at all, and I'm just going to trudge through it the best I can. But I, they just do not feel confident or efficacious about their abilities. Uh, and that breaks my heart because, like I said, it's the fa- my favorite class. It's such a great class. Um, so it's a real challenge, particularly in that course. Uh, and so th- some ways that I try to foster that growth mindset in the classroom is by trying to break down that idea that some people can do math and some people can't, which is I'm sure you're uh, very familiar with yes. as a mathematician yourself. Um, and so I have uh, so many students who uh, come into class and say, I'm not a math person. Uh, the very first time I, I taught quantitative methods as a recitation instructor, I was blown away by the sheer volume of students who stayed after class or who wrote me emails to say, just a heads up, I'm not a math person. I can't do math. Uh, these are primarily psychology students who, you know, maybe it's a little different with math majors, but these are psychology students who are terrified of statistics. Not all of them, of course, but many of them. Um, And so, like I said, I was blown away by just the volume of them who had this fixed mindset, who were coming into this class saying, just so you know, I can't do this, which is, you know, we know through research is a terrible way (laughs) to to go through and and succeed is that you need to have that self-efficacy. You need to feel like you're capable in order to achieve your goals. And so... I was really blown away by that, and and so from that experience, I really changed the way that I started talking about math in the classroom. So uh, after that first semester, I started every single time I teach this class, day one, I, I ban certain phrases in my classroom. So I tell them, do not come to me after class, do not raise your hand during class and tell me that you are not a math person, that you cannot do math, that you are bad at math. Uh, and I try to explain that, you know, Maybe you didn't do well in this class before. Maybe you're nervous about this class, but that doesn't mean that you're not capable. So everyone's learning in a different way. So maybe you just didn't have the right professor, or maybe you weren't studying in the right way or approaching the problems with the right mindset, um, but you are certainly capable. And so I take, I take away kind of that excuse. I tell them, you know, everyone uh, that I've taught, I've taught thousands of students in this class, and there's no first, you know, seeable differences that I you know, have found as I look across like my diverse classrooms, everyone is capable of success and will find, I'll work with you to find the way that is the best way for you to succeed in this class. And so I, I have to absolutely take away uh, that phrase. They are not allowed to use it. Anytime someone comes up to me, they'll still try to use it. <laughs> I will literally plug my ears and say, try again. Like, nope, <laughs> nope, nope. I'm not going to have this conversation with you until you reframe. 
uh, and they get annoyed, but they do it, they reframe, and I think they're better off for it. Um, and so that's the you know first thing that I do is just right away say, do not tell me you are bad at math because I am sure that you are capable. Um, and then some other things that I do is you know have students reflect on progress. So even if they come in, even if they don't believe me when I say that they can do it, I have them take moments where they look back and reflect and say, okay, remember when that one thing was really hard? Like, you can do that now. Like, you have grown. You have made progress. Uh, and this class's statistics is such a cumulative course that really, you know, students have to use the skills they learn on day one in the last day of the class. So there are several points throughout the semester where I, you know, will stop them and say, okay, like, let's check in. How are we feeling right now? And they're overwhelmed and they're stressed and it's scary. And so they'll say, you know, I'm stressed out. Like, I don't understand this. Like, this, this seems like a lot. And they say, okay, like, take a moment. Maybe, like, write it down how you're feeling right now. Like, just remember this moment. We're going to revisit this moment. And then, you know, even just, like, a week later, I'll say, okay, remember last week when I told you, you know, to remember how you were feeling? Like, how are you feeling now about conducting those problems? And they're like, oh, I can do it. Like, that's actually not that bad. Like, wow, okay. Um, and that's so great for them. Like, it just, even looking around the classroom, they look so proud of themselves that they've, you know, overcome this challenge. And I think it helps them then as you move through the class when they have moments where they're overwhelmed or they're stressed out to say, okay, I, I felt like this before and I overcame it. So I'm going to recognize, like, check in that I'm going to be stressed now, but next week I won't be stressed about this. And so trying to help them recognize the progress that they've made. Uh, and I think, you know, I had one student who had taken my class once before. This is her third time taking statistics. Um, and she was really anxious about taking it. She was really struggling uh, before with this course. Um, and she was so sweet. She emailed me at the end of the semester and was like, remember when you told me to, to look back? At, in that moment, I thought you were crazy. <laughs> and she's like, you, you know, you said that I was going to feel really confident in a week about that stuff. And I, like, definitely thought that you were, like, off your rocker. Um, she's like, but I, I did look back. And looking back now, like, I did do it. And, like, wow, like, you really, like, changed my mind and how I think about my abilities. And so that was, like, so rewarding to, to see students actually recognizing that they are capable and they are confident. And that bleeds over into other things they do, like they'll pursue research or they'll pursue science and they won't feel so discouraged about like their capability in the field. We've mentioned a couple times that you've uh, done some hybrid teaching. Mm -hmm. Do these issues of diversity change in a hybrid setting or are the approaches and the challenges and solutions pretty similar? I found that they don't change so much. So, you know, the way that I set up my course is pretty similar. Um, I've never had a, a controversial issue come up with a hybrid that hasn't come up with the regular course or vice versa. I think perhaps it would be different for a fully online course. So I haven't taught like a fully online course before. At least with the hybrid, I do get to check in with them. They still get to know me. They see me. They see one another. And I think putting that human face on their classmates and myself like helps maybe take away some of the issues that might arise with you know semi you know anonymity online um so i've been fortunate with the hybrid that i think it helps you know reduce maybe some of those problems but if i had to guess i would say that maybe it's more difficult for an online course especially because like i said students 
don't actually have to put a human body in front of a name. So I do like the online format because it does let them put a face to a name. I want to ask a question that's maybe a little off topic because I'm just so curious. Um, (laughs) One of the ways that you said you approach this anxiety that students Mm -hmm. feel is through humor. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the potato project. Yes. Where students take data on a Mm -hmm. potato. What is that project? (laughs) So um, just a little history of the potato project. So when I was in fourth grade, um, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Loftus, shout out to Mrs. Loftus, um, it was the Olympics and she uh, had us do potato olympics so basically we got potatoes and we our potatoes got nationalities and we did events with them we did shot put we did the high dive it was like a whole thing and so when i had a great time and i learned a ton my country was jamaica uh so i learned a ton and had a really great time doing that project as a a kid and so when it came to developing my quant course i wanted to do something that was going to be fun and engaging and i find that if students think that a joke is really dumb or is like lame that they actually love it and so and they get engaged and even if they're groaning that's something that means they're paying attention right and so when I came to developing quant I said I wanted to do something you know just like silly something that's gonna just take their their anxiety away maybe just a little bit so you know if someone's nervous about calculating a, a problem and they're doing something about you know milligrams of whatever that that's, you know, something that they already, you know, don't want to think about and is stressful. And so instead of talking about, you know, milligrams of a particular chemical, if we're saying, okay, well, what happens to a potato when you rub it in oil and roll it down a hill? Like, that's something that they can grasp, that they can, like, understand and that it's funny and it, they get, like, really competitive. So uh, the potato project is at the beginning of the semester, I tell students to go out and, and get a potato. Now, there are no requirements on the type of potato. So it can be a red potato, a russet potato, whatever they want. just has to be a potato. Go out and get one. Now, granted, this only works for a short summer class. I don't know how long potatoes keep. (laughs) So perhaps this project would not work as well um, for a full semester course. Um, But in the short summer class, the potatoes seem to survive. uh, And they get a potato, and then every uh, homework assignment, there's a question that they have to answer about the potato. So whatever, weigh it, calculate the mean, things like that. Uh, for the all the classes, potato weights, I'll say, okay, half of you roll your potato down this desk. The other half of you rub it in oil and then roll it down the desk. Let's see, let's do a T-test and see if they're different. Um, you know, we'll do things like, you know, if you're if it was colonial times, like what would be the colonial name your potato would get? Would it be like Antoinette or whatever? And so we get to do um, you know nominal data calculations or non-parametric tests on potato names. So just like dumb things that that make them groan, uh, that helps keep them engaged. And then at the end of the semester. I really encourage students to get practice uh, presenting, doing presentations. And so they have the option to you know, collect more data from more potatoes and then disseminate their research findings. So they have to develop a research question about their potatoes or about potatoes generally, uh, and then you know, present that in like a research context and, and do calculations and present the statistics. Uh, and it's it's something that's feasible that they can really grasp. Um, and, and it's just like a lot of fun. Uh, at the end of the first time I taught or I conducted this uh, this potato project, 
Uh, the students were really cute. They actually got together and cooked all their potatoes <laughs> at the end of the year, um, which was sweet that they wanted to spend that time together to celebrate the end of an era, but also so disgusting because they had been doing so many things with those potatoes all year or all summer. I was like, don't eat them, please. Like, that's so gross. Uh, but they did. And I mean, I haven't heard from, from many of them, but I'm hoping they're okay. <laughs> so we'll see. That's, that's great. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned since you started teaching? So I think I think the most important thing that I've learned is or one thing that I've really I've changed as I've taught longer is you know when I'm teaching in a classroom I really you know had this idea that it would be I have the knowledge and I'm going to share that knowledge with students and that's how I'm going to approach teaching and I I really changed in the way that I think about teaching over the last couple of years and that now my approach is more I know some things, they know other things, and we're going to exchange knowledge. So the thing that I've, I would say I've learned the most is that students have you know, just as much to teach me as I do to teach them. And uh, it's really you know, changed the way that I interact with students and the dialogue that I have with them. So I'd say my biggest advice for, for future teachers or educators is to listen, to recognize that the students are bringing something to the table and each one of them is going to bring something else and to be open to hearing their feedback and hearing their thoughts and that you can learn from them just as much as they can learn from you. One last question. Mm -hmm. So you're going on the job market. You're getting ready to graduate. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So that means that you've you've been doing research and you've Mm -hmm. been you've done enough that you can be you know graduating with a PhD and (laughs) we'll see (laughs) theoretically right yeah you you have some time Mm -hmm. um but also you're clearly devoted to teaching Mm -hmm. and spend a lot of time on teaching and how do you find time to do both how do you manage to spend enough time on your research and, and put enough dedication to that but also be so dedicated to your teaching and spend all this time on that. Yeah, I think it's a delicate balance. So I really think that PhD students have to just determine what their priorities are, right? And so to try to figure out early what sort of career that they're interested in having. You know, for me, I, I've just really tried to balance. And so sometimes that means switching things up per semester. So taking a certain semester to say, you know what, this semester I'm going to really focus on research. I'm going to pull back on the teaching. Uh, I'm going to try to get some stuff uh, done in that sense. And then also just protecting your time. So I try really hard to compartmentalize, uh, which means that I'll tend to put all my teaching responsibilities on the same day and my research responsibilities on other days so that I can sort of say, okay, you know what, Wednesdays I'm going to do all my teaching stuff and I'm going to completely dedicate my brain space to my teaching but then on Thursdays I'm going to entirely focus on research and so instead of trying to bounce back and forth all day to try to really set up my weeks in a way that I can prioritize one thing someday one day and another thing another day um, but it's hard it's, it's tough I'm not gonna say it's not a challenge uh, to try to do both of those things uh, but at the end of the day I think it's what uh, you know, I'm passionate about both of these things. And so when you're passionate about something, it's easy to make it work. My thanks again to today's guest, Christina Hoansky. Any resources mentioned in this episode will be listed in the show notes, which are located on our blog, tapruckers.wordpress.com. 
You can also find more information on our website at tap.ruckers.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing with a friend. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.